Well, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll be there in just a few minutes. 1 Thessalonians 4. The great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon, one of my heroes of the faith, he loved the church of Jesus Christ. He devoted himself to the bride of Christ. On one occasion, however, he issued a warning about a danger to the church. Here's what he said. He said, quote, Nobody can do as much damage to the church of God as the man who is within its walls, but not within its life. In other words, the church is hindered, it falters, it limps when someone in the church isn't really part of the church. They're intertwined with the life of the church if they're doing what they're supposed to do, but the one who is not intertwined damages the church. And really one of the root causes of this concerning phenomenon is very simply a lack of love, a lack of love for the church of Jesus Christ. Now, when someone says, I love a certain store or I love a certain restaurant, what are we really saying? Well, what we're really saying is I love what I can get there. I love the service that can be provided to me. And unfortunately, the consumer mentality like that very easily gets transferred into how we think about the church. I love my church. But really, it may be because of what I get from it, from an organization. And what I'd like to do this morning is challenge all of us to alter that sort of thinking. That we love the church not because of what we get, but we love the church because we're part of her. And she's part of us, not because of certain services which are provided. Now, to be certain, the church is to be about the business of doing things. It's quite simple. And this is the central focus that we try to have here at Grace Bible Church, Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's what we're to do. But my question for you this morning is, do you love the bride of Christ? Are you overjoyed at the fact that you're part of the church body, part of a local church, which is the called representative of Christ on earth? Or perhaps do you find yourself more in the category of Spurgeon's concern of the person who's within the walls of the church, but not within the life of the church? So I want to finish our time in the Gospel of John doing an examination of John chapter 21 in a short series that I'm just going to call Love Your Church. And this will then help us begin 1 Timothy. It's a very ecclesiological book, a very church-centered book in a month or so. But before we get even into the text of John 21, I want to dig some deep trenches for us so that the water of the word can flow to your heart very freely. I I want to plow the furrows of your mind so that in the coming weeks when we plant seeds in that soil, it grows in well-cultivated soil. John 21 is going to show us some of the most famous incidents in all of the Gospels. We see a post-resurrection appearance of Christ with seven of his disciples We'll see Jesus telling Peter three times over, feed my sheep. We'll see Jesus predicting the future crucifixion of Peter. We'll see Peter asking Jesus if maybe John could be crucified also. And we see John testifying at the end of the gospel that the libraries of the world couldn't contain all the marvelous things that Jesus had done during his ministry. But John 21 is epic. But it's also important to note where it's placed where it falls in our New Testament. 
John's gospel is the last one to be written, and we're being set up for the book of Acts, in which almost immediately we see the birth of what? The church of Jesus Christ. And thus, in John 21, there are lessons for us. There are preparatory lessons to be learned about the church in this final chapter of John. But I want to take some time, like I said, to dig some deep trenches for the water of the word to flow very freely into your heart. I want to prepare your hearts and minds for these final messages. And so all I'd like to do this morning is I want to make and prove three statements to you today about the love of the church. Three statements. I'm going to give them to you up front. Statement number one. Love for the church is the trademark of the Christian. Love for the church is the trademark of the Christian. Statement number two. You must be vigilant to guard your love. You must be vigilant to guard your love. And statement number three. You are evaluated with your church. You are evaluated with your church. So here's our three statements. Love for the church is the trademark of the Christian. You must be vigilant to guard your love and you are evaluated with your church. So let's just look at these in the order I gave them. First statement, love for the church is the trademark of the Christian. Love for the church is the trademark of the Christian. Now the New Testament has much to say certainly about loving in general. But I want to more be more focused and go in very hard on the fact that we're to be loving the church. That's what makes the Christian a, a unique entity, that we love the church. And in fact, we can prove this very easily. All humanity, all human beings, regardless of faith, are made in the image of God. And as such, humanity is capable of great and abiding love. We are capable of this, regardless of our status in Christ but only the Christian truly loves the church. The world has animosity toward the church because the world has animosity toward Christ. And so love for the church is the trademark of the Christian. And in fact, this is all over the New Testament. Now, for the next few minutes, if you're a note taker, I don't know that you can really take notes here. What I want to do is just have the waves of love for the church wash over you and, and immerse you in just how much this is the stamp of the Christian. And so we could organize these waves by who is speaking. We could consider Jesus himself. Jesus said in John thirteen thirty four, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Why is this a new commandment? Because now this is love based in Messiah, based in the new covenant. So it's a new commandment. Jesus said that our love for each other witnesses to our status as being saved. In John thirteen thirty five. by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And there is no sense in which this is a suggestion. He says again in John fifteen seventeen that we're commanded to love one another. How about the Apostle Paul, the writer of nearly half of our New Testament books? He submerges us in love for the church. In Romans 5, verse 5, he asserts that the Holy Spirit has poured love into our hearts. There's a sense of a never-ending supply, of an abundance, of a spigot that's never turned off. 
In Romans 12, 9, he commands us, let love be genuine. It's a Greek word that means without hypocrisy. That love is not a show. It's not merely visible signs of affection which give the mistaken impression that you love. Anybody can fake love. Anybody can be a hugger. Anybody can be affectionate outwardly. But he says, let love be genuine. It's from your heart. You really mean it. In fact, Paul says that you owe love to one another. You owe it. Romans 13, 8, owe no one anything except to love each other. Paul says that it's love given by God which drives us to pray for each other. It's, it's, it's love-driven prayer. Romans fifteen thirty, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Paul reminds us that Christians who are obsessed with knowledge only are prideful, but love is better. Love is what builds us up. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1, the arrogant knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And in fact, spiritual pride, which is devoid of love, makes you look ridiculous, Paul says. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You're ridiculous. You're, you're a cartoon. And of course, Paul has gifted us with the great poetic exclamation of 15 qualities of love in 1 Corinthians 13, that love is patient, kind, doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not arrogant, it's not rude, doesn't insist on its own way, it's not irritable, it's not resentful, it doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And Paul puts our priorities aright. In verse 13, he says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is what? Is love. It's at the top of the list. In fact, Paul commands in 1 Corinthians 14.1 that we're to pursue love. It means to hasten toward love, to run to love, to press toward love. And he tells us that we ought to evaluate everything we do through the lens of the motive of love. He says in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all that you do be done in love. Paul told the Corinthian church, his most wayward and difficult church, by the way, in 2 Corinthians 2, 4, that he has abundant love for them. It's a word that means beyond what's regular, very great, excessive. He's just overflowing with love for them. In fact, Paul had boasted to other churches that the church at Corinth was so very loving and that they would prove it with a generous gift toward Paul's Jerusalem collection that he was working on. And so Paul challenges the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 8, 24. He says, so give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. What does that mean? Loving churches give. Loving Christians give. They're generous. He says we're to serve one another motivated by, based in love. Galatians 5.13, through love serve one another. Paul places love at the head of the list of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, and with eight other fruit of the Spirit listed as well. He exhorts us in Ephesians 4.15 to help each other's sanctification by speaking the truth in love. To help one another grow. Listen, lots of Christians like to speak the truth to one another. Not many of them like to speak it in love. 
As a matter of fact, as we're doing this, this is part of, of making, this is the very next verse in Ephesians 4, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is speaking of the numerical growth of the church, the expansion of the church based on its growth in love. And of course, we're reminded in Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives. This is manifested in sacrificial love. Titus 2.4, wives are to love their husbands and children. That's love expressed in respect for husbands and discipline and training for children. Paul told the Philippian church that love is what is a major part of their unity together. Philippians 2 verse 2, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. There's their unity, having the same love. In fact, Paul connected the faith of the Colossian church with their affection for the church. Faith and affection goes together. Colossians 1.4, we have heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love that you have for all the saints. True faith manifests itself in love. And in the passage that we take here is our church purpose. I mentioned a moment ago, Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul goes on to say that there will be a benefit to this, a benefit to preaching Christ, a benefit to preaching sanctification. Just a few verses later, here's the benefit. Colossians 2, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. That's what Colossians 1.28 accomplishes. Paul had a lot to say about love to the church at Thessalonica, generally in the way of commendation and compliment. He commended them in 1 Thessalonians 1.3 for their, quote, work of faith and labor of love. It shows us that gospel labors are motivated by love. He expressed in 1 Thessalonians 3.6 how gratifying it was that Timothy had brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us. They had love for their leaders and it made, it, made them long for him. He even told them that love acts as a spiritual protection, spiritual armor. We're very familiar with the armor of God in Ephesians 6. We're less familiar with the armor of God that Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 8. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. There's a protective element. He told them that love was to be the byword for how they treated their spiritual leaders, how they treated their elders, their pastors. In 1 Thessalonians 5.13, with their leaders, they were to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Very highly. This is a a Greek word for abounding in love, but with a a prefix, huper, from which we get hyper, hyper abounding, beyond all measure. That there's, there's limitless love for their leaders. In this first letter to Timothy, he focused Timothy on the central purpose of his teaching, the central purpose of his ministry, his central purpose of his, his teaching to the church of Jesus Christ. He said in 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge, that is our duty, our, what we teach, what we preach, what we do, the aim of our charge is love. It issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And to be an example, he told Timothy, the man of God, which is a technical term for one who's been set apart for the ministry alone, that the man of God is to engage in love. 1 Timothy 6.11, but as for you, O man of God, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, 
love. Paul told Titus that love is to be one of the hallmarks of older men in the church. Titus 2, verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. By the way, grammatically, they're sound in faith and sound in love. It's a word that means healthy, doing what's right. They're mature. They're not favoring some over others. They're not filled with drama. They're not self-seeking. They're not exclusive. They love. Paul expressed thankfulness to his friend Philemon, that love had invigorated him and the whole church. Philemon 7, Paul says to Philemon, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because of the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. The love is refreshing. It brings joy. It brings comfort. And, and the whole purpose of Paul's letter to Philemon, his purpose to ask him to forgive the runaway slave Onesimus, to what does Paul appeal Philemon 9, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you that love drives forgiveness. That's just Paul. How about the writer of Hebrews? The writer of Hebrews assures us that God will reward you for your love. It won't go unrewarded. Hebrews 6, verse 10, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work And the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. God is tracking your love. He's writing down your love. He's recording your love. He is accounting for your love. And of course, he famously encourages us in Hebrews 10.24 to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We're to inspire each other to love. We're to push one another to love. We're to be an example to one another of love. How about James, the half-brother of Jesus, who initially rejected the gospel until after the cross? What does he call love? He calls love the royal law. The royal law. James 2, verse 8, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. How about Peter? As the Lord sanctified him, Surprisingly, Peter gave us some of our greatest statements on love in all of the Bible. He said in 1 Peter 1.22 that we obey the truth, quote, for a sincere brotherly love, and as such we're to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That love is to be real, is to be genuine. Not a Christian show, but something that proceeds from your soul. As we saw last week in typical Peter fashion, he reduces Truth to easily digestible pieces which are simple, which are understandable. He said in 1 Peter 2.17, very simply, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. That's the Christian life. And it includes at the center, love the brotherhood. And in what is my favorite statement of all time from Peter on love, one of his most striking statements, he says in 1 Peter 4.8, above all, Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't mean that your love for someone else atones for sin. That's God's job alone. It means that love doesn't point out every single sin every single time. Love covers a multitude of sins. For Peter, 
where does love fit into the growth of the Christian, the maturity of the Christian? For Peter, it's the pinnacle, it's the culmination, it's the high point, which began with our initial faith in Christ. Listen, 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 5. Listen to this progression, this crescendo. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Love is the apex. It's the summit of faith. For Peter, well, then you get to the Apostle John and in 1 John, you step onto page 1 and you get run over by a Mack truck filled with love. In John's three epistles, he speaks of love 52 times, 20% of all the mentions of love in the entire New Testament. In 1 John 3.10, you don't love your brother, you're a child of the devil. There's no mincing words there. The very next verse, 1 John 3.11, he says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. That's a nice way of saying, I've told you this a thousand times. 1 John 3.17, if you don't care for a brother in need, God's love doesn't abide in you. And you ever hear the phrase, talk is cheap? John said that about love. 1 John 3.18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 1 John 3.23, he strongly reminds us that love isn't suggested, it's ordered. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his, his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Twice in one verse, it's a commandment, it's a commandment. In fact, John just flat out says that your love proves that you've been born again, proves that you are regenerate. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. He says in verse 12 of the same chapter, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. So when you get to John, you're just run over by love for the body, love for the church. Well, how about Jude? The half-brother of Jesus. You only get a couple dozen verses in Jude. Is he going to talk about love? The half-brother of Jesus greets his readers with the wish, in verse 2, that love be multiplied to the saints. It's It's a word that means increased, filled up to overflowing. And like Paul, he considers love a spiritual protection. He says in verse 21 of Jude, keep yourselves in the love of God. This isn't the sense of preserving your own salvation, but preserving your sanctification. and Keeping obedient. If everything you do is centered on love, you're going to have minimal sin to deal with. All of them. Jesus, Paul, The writer of Hebrews, James, Peter, John, Jude, make it clear that for the love for the church is the trademark of the Christian. That's what shows you to be in the faith. But the one who's aloof, the one who's distant from the church of Jesus Christ is completely utterly out of step with the New Testament and as we saw in 1 John is actually in danger of proving that he was never a believer in the first place. The New New Testament makes it clear that the most content, the most joyful, the most humble Christians are those who love their churches. A Christian at the end of his life 
My hope would be for you, Christian, that a major word associated with your life is the church. Will that be said of you? Will it be said that you loved your church, that you cherished the body of Christ, or were you aloof? Were you separated? Were you never really apart? Recently, in relation to our current coronavirus shutdown, I read someone who said he was concerned that if churches can't meet for much longer, Christians and churches are just going to drift apart. That's ridiculous. I'm not in the least bit concerned about how long we might need to obey the government's attempt to slow the spread of coronavirus. If we were shut down for five years, the true church would flock together to meet once again. Paul told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.17, he said, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, that's kind of what's happened to us, hasn't it? But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored, listen to this, the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Love for the church is the trademark of the Christian I'll tell you one thing that I think coronavirus is going to do. There will be a day when the church is reopened. And I think in every local church, there may be a few missing. Because they went so long without the church that they came to realize that they weren't part of the church. And they just won't go back. That's what's going to happen. Love for the church is the trademark of the Christian Let me give you a second statement. Our second statement, you must be vigilant to guard your love. You must be vigilant to guard your love. Now we can look at 1 Thessalonians 4. We're 26 minutes in. You've been very patient. The church at Thessalonica, I I tell you what, reading 1 and 2 Thessalonians is like a drink of cool water. They just seem to be hitting on all cylinders, even though they're a very young church. Now, Paul does give them plenty of instruction, but there's rarely, if ever, any flavor of rebuke. And one compliment he gives them, this is a compliment. It's like winning a gold medal. They're excelling at something. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9. Here's the medal that they are winning in the eyes of the Apostle Paul. Verse 9, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Paul says, I don't need to talk to you about brotherly love. Now, that's an example of what in literature is called paralipsis. Paralipsis is a rhetorical device where the writer says he's not going to mention something and then he goes ahead and mentions it. It's like saying to your young child, I know I don't need to remind you to clean your room and do your chores. You are so responsible. I don't have to remind you that it better be done by noon or your life is over. I'm so thankful for your dependability. I'm so glad I didn't have to remind you of that. Paul is very friendly. He doesn't challenge the church. He doesn't confront them, but rather he takes what was already going well and encourages them to build on it. He says they've been taught by God. This is one word in Greek. It's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. How is it they've been taught by God? Well, two ways. The teaching of Jesus Christ through the apostles, they've already received this, but also the Holy Spirit is teaching them. They're they're loving one another. In fact, they haven't been in Christ long enough to learn how to be jaded against one another yet. The young church at Thessalonica They learned very quickly that they had to be a community 
unto themselves. And he defines their relationship as brotherly love. This is a, a relational love, a kinship, a family love, which is acted upon by functioning as a spiritual community, a spiritual family. But it's not just with their local body. In verse 10, look with me at verse 10. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Macedonia was a province of the Roman Empire. They're not just an encouragement to themselves, but they were seeking to form relationships with other local bodies, with other believers all throughout the province. And considering the fact that they had no means of communication that wasn't ancient in nature, this is a phenomenal Phenomenal accomplishment. What a sound body of believers. They're loving one another. They're hitting on all cylinders. They're even loving other churches. And so is Paul going to say, great job, keep up the good work? Nope. Verse 10, the second half. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. When he says, but, we urge you, there's a surprise coming. We're going to urge you to do more and more. In fact, in Greek, this is kind of a redundant phrase. It's two different Greek words, both translated in English, more, basically meaning we urge you to love one another, abounding in moreness. It's just to drive this point home very, very deeply. This is the idea of a never-ending crescendo. It's a symphony that never stops getting bigger and louder and broader. He's saying, is your love big? Make it bigger. Is your love grand? Make it more grand. Is your love great? Make it greater. Work harder. Do better. This is his command here, and it was his prayer Just a few verses earlier, chapter 3, verse 12. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 12. This is his prayer. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. What's the purpose? What's the goal? What's the intent of the love? Very next verse, verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Did you get that connection? Love and blamelessness and holiness. What what does this mean? Well, I want you to stop and think for a moment. If you were able to let all that you do be done in love every moment of your day, how much sin would be eradicated in your life? Pretty much all of it. You would be living a holy life, a blameless life. Love is the great cleansing agent of the church. It really is. Well, how did they do? Did the young church take the challenge? Flip over a page or so to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Here it is. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Their their faith, their depth of understanding and trust in the Lord is growing abundantly and the result is that their love for one another is growing as well. But why did Paul give them the gentle warning Back in 1 Thessalonians 4, remember we called it a a paralypsis. 
where he says, I don't have to tell you to love one another. Why did he give this? Well, he's telling them in very tender terms, guard your love. And how are they to guard it? By increasing it, by making it bigger. It would be useless to simply say, let our church be more loving. What does that mean? Well, that means it's somebody else's responsibility. That means that the elders are supposed to meet and make our church more loving, that there's supposed to be a leadership strategy of some sort, that we're going to make our church more loving. No. How can you guard your love? How can you be more loving? How can you? I want to ask you to trust me to speak the truth in love, to just be honest with you. Let's do a little shepherding here for a moment. I want to give you some don'ts and do's to think about, helpful things to think about, don'ts and do's, just a few, some don'ts in how to increase your love. Don't be pushy. Don't be pushy. Don't be the person who has to manage and control the details of relationships, who makes statements instead of ask questions. Eventually, people will be turned off by you and they'll either learn to fear you or avoid you. Don't be pushy. Don't be overly aggressive. Here's another don't. Don't be above correction. Don't be above correction. If someone has the courage and takes the risk to speak something to you that hurt them or that they see maybe as hurting others, there's almost certainly at least a grain of truth in what they had to say. But if all those closest to you begin to learn the hard way that you'll default to defending yourself all the time, they'll learn that being close to you is risky. And maybe it's too risky for them. And frankly, they just won't like being around you because they've learned that the relationship isn't real. Here's another don't. Don't have silent expectations. Don't have silent expectations. You you set yourself up for disappointment and for bitterness. A person won't know what you're desiring in a relationship with them unless you express it, unless you say so. Here's another don't. Don't mark off a relationship after one disappointment. Don't mark off a relationship after one disappointment. It is a dangerous thing to begin a new relationship with a fellow brother or sister and begin with a blank slate. But as humanity shows, as sin shows, those get added to a list until after a while you say, I can't be your friend. I can't be close to you anymore because you disappointed me. Yes, it takes effort. It takes persistence at times to form a relationship with someone who's not doing precisely what you pictured that they would be doing. One more don't. Don't forget that Jesus died for your brothers and sisters. Jesus died for your brothers and sisters. His agony on the cross was to save them too, to save the person that you are having a difficult time with. At the very least, You love because Christ has already loved them. By the way, next week I'm going to outline the amazing qualities that are unique only to the Christian, only to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Qualities that should lead to great affection, great love, great adoration, great tenderness with one another. Let me give you some do's on increasing your love, guarding, being vigilant to guard your love. Do adjust to people's differences. Do adjust to people's differences. Instead of being frustrated when someone doesn't do life just like you, enjoy the differences and and adjust to them. Let it be okay. Don't try to surround yourself with people who are identical to you. 
Here's another one. Do seek to give attention, not get attention. Seek to give attention, not get attention. You cannot control how much attention you get. You can control how much attention you give. This is very, very practical. This means things like listen more than you talk. It means things like giving for its own sake, not to get something back. Very, very practical. Seek to give, not get attention. Here's another do. Do take advantages of opportunities to gather. Take advantage of opportunities to gather. I know we're in a challenging time right now, but it'll be over soon enough. But consistently, and I've been a pastor for a long time now, consistently the ones who are here the most are really at the center of the heartbeat of the church. There is no substitute. There's no substitute for you encouraging others by your physical presence. Here's another do. Do actively to deepen relationships. Do actively uh, seek to deepen relationships. Actively seek to deepen relationships. Now, I, I want to give you a, a complex phrase that you can say to someone. You can say, I would like to deepen our relationship. It's really that simple. And that puts them kind of in a weird position. They either have to say, uh, yes, that would be great. Or awkwardly, actually, I don't like you. And I don't want to do that. Which means you need to say, then we really need to deepen our relationship. And one more, do beware, notice I turned a don't into a do, do beware of getting into a rut of the same one or two people or families that you default to being with them 95% of the time. Beware of that. We are the body of Christ. We are not the two fingers of Christ. We are the body. And I got to tell you, if I was keeping statistics of the saddest questions and concerns that have ever been brought to me as a pastor at the top of the list by far has always been how do i break into the friendship groups that i see in the church how do i break into the cliques and that breaks my heart because i don't have a good answer for that i can't make that happen so you have to help make that happen Let me give you one more don't. We'll call this the bonus don't. Don't limit yourself. Don't limit yourself. Don't stay safe with people who are just like you. As Spurgeon said, don't be within the walls of the church. Be within the life of the church. We have such a glorious variety of people at Grace Bible Church, at every local church, and God has done that on purpose. I don't believe in grouping churches according to groups, according to things you have in common. We have one thing in common, and it's Christ. And we gather because of Christ. And we enjoy the variety. Listen, guard your love. Cultivate your love. And you have to do it on purpose. Let me give you one more statement to prove, will prove. Love for the church is the trademark of the Christian. You must be vigilant to guard your love. One more statement. You are evaluated with your church. You are evaluated with your church. Turn with me to the end of our Bible, to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2, we've considered these seven churches of Asia Minor listed here in Revelation 2 and 3 at various other times. But there's a reason that they're placed right at the very end of the Bible. It's a continual reminder of the endless, the the countless lessons and warnings and exhortations for us. 
The Lord Jesus Christ himself is evaluating these seven churches with his all-knowing, all-seeing nature. And listen, if you're still not convinced that you want to be all in, want to be deeply in the life of the church, if you are, as it were, attending but not joining, I've got news for you. You're still going to be evaluated. There will be no asterisk next to your name that says, well, I didn't actually officially join the church. Therefore, you're not a part of this time of evaluation. You're still here. And if you're not all in, you will be evaluated as being part of the problem and not part of the joy and the life and the breath of the church. I just want to show you a few ways that you're evaluated with your church. These are really just samples. We could do a couple of dozen, but I'm just going to give three samples of how you're evaluated with your church. And I'll do these three samples just to make one main point. Just a few samples. First of all, you're evaluated as a leader. You're evaluated as a leader. If you're in leadership in the church at any level, give heed to this. Every church evaluation here in Revelation 2 and 3 begins with this phrase, Revelation 2 verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, and it might list other churches, it'll list other churches in the other sections, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, and then we have uh, the instruction, the, the exhortation and so forth, the angel of the church in Ephesus. Who is that? Well, as happens often in the Bible, this angel is speaking of a human messenger, not a a heavenly angel. In both Old and New Testament, angel, messenger, is used of more than just God's heavenly angels. It's often used to speak of a human messenger. It's been used to speak of Jesus' disciples, of John's disciples, Joshua's Jericho scouts, John the Baptist. Even extra-biblical literature uses angel to speak of human messengers. Also, these are real letters written to real churches with real issues. How exactly would John send a letter to an angel? And how would they be delivered? And by the way, heavenly angels don't rule the church. They serve the church. Hebrews 1.14 says this, but these are clearly rulers of the church. Now, these angels here, these are much more consistent with the human leaders such that we would see, for example, in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. These are the ones who will give an account. And these angels are singular in each church, a human leader among leaders in our culture today. We might call them the senior pastor, the lead elder. And the angel in each church is not allowed any finger pointing here. There's no, well... I had a lousy church. Nope. Leaders are accountable to God, expected to lead, to create the right direction and culture of the church. So you're evaluated as a leader. Here's a second sample of how you're evaluated with your church. You're evaluated in your love. You're evaluated in your love. This is an appropriate example as it directly relates to what we're talking about today. Chapter 2, verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And the, the big question always is, which love? Have they abandoned their love for Christ or have they abandoned their love for one another? Well, it's really simple. If you don't love Christ's bride, the church, then you don't really love Christ, do you? So you abandon one, you abandon the other. Let me put it to you this way. Men, can you imagine someone saying to you, hey, I'd really like to have you over to my house, but I can't stand your wife, so could you just leave her home? No, that's a package deal. 
And in the same way, if you say you love Christ, then your local church comes with him. It's a package deal. Now, since you're evaluated with your church, if you feel our church, for example, is not loving enough, then you do something. You increase your love. You be more loving. You be more kind. You help change the culture. You do it. One more sample. You're evaluated in your suffering. You're evaluated in your suffering. Chapter 2, verse 8. To the, church of the, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. When the church suffers, do you suffer alongside her? Do you sacrifice to help or do you watch others do that? The suffering in the church of Smyrna was due to persecution, but the church suffers in many other ways as well. Illness, tragedy, financial hardship. We're in a time of suffering right now. So when you're evaluated with your church, were you a, a participant in the suffering or were you a spectator that backed out just in time to not have to be part of it? Now, we could create many more categories as you read through the text of the seven churches. In our Revelation series a few years ago, I did a message on every one, if you're curious about that. But these samples serve to make one main point. Here it is. You might as well love your local church because God is going to lump you in with them anyway. You might as well love them because he will evaluate every local church And if you're a part, then you're a part. Listen, this is one of the saddest things I've ever seen in ministry, and it's something I don't have an immediate answer for except for the preaching of God's word and prayer and belief that the Holy Spirit can change this. But something happens to Christians who lose their intimate connection with their local church. There is an aloofness that begins to develop There's a sense of somehow being above, being part of the church, which can develop. And I've noticed this. There's a little tripping point. There's a little giveaway that when someone begins to refer to their church as separate from themselves, there's been a separation. There's been an aloofness. There's been a standing back that this isn't, I'm not part of the church. That is the church and I'm over here. Listen, we're wired by God to be part of the covenant community and not just in general, but specifically and intimately connected to one local body of believers, warts and all, imperfect leaders, imperfect men, imperfect women, imperfect children. We're wired that way. And if you say, well, I'm a consumer, I get my teaching from this church, I get my fellowship from this church, and I get my youth activities from this church, then you're being a consumer, and you're not being faithful to love your church. Well, in John 21, over the next four weeks or so, in our Love Your Church series, I'm going to be giving you reasons to love your church. They're all positive, great reasons. Reason number one, For the beloved sheep. Reason number two, for the faithful shepherds. Reason number three, for your life purpose. 
And reason number four, for your worthy master. And my goal is for you to love your church, not because it's perfect, not because it's hip or relevant, not because of anything external, but very simply because your church is the bride of Christ. And to stay aloof from the bride of Christ is to stay aloof from Christ. The Christian life is not that complicated. It really isn't. Hear the preached word in a local church such that has happened to the men on the road to Emmaus as they walked with Jesus preaching to them. Later they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us? Then love one another as commanded about 40 billion times in the New Testament. Obey the preached word in your family, in your workplace, in relation to governing authorities and in relation to one another in the church. Work in the church as a labor of love for the sake of the gospel and go home to heaven and be rewarded. That's the Christian life. That's it. Don't think you're above this. Don't think you're different. Don't think you're unique. Don't think you're special. Instead, let's be like the very first church. The Blessed Church in Jerusalem. Did you know that they never had to be commanded to meet together? 3,000 got saved and got baptized in Acts chapter 2. And then, Acts 2, 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves not just to the teaching, but to the life of the church. To the life. I started with this thought-provoking quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said, Nobody can do as much damage to the church of God as the man who is within its walls, but not within its life. Well, let's close by stating that in the positive. Nobody can cause as much joy and delight to the church of God as the man who is within its walls and within its life. Well, next week, Love your church for the beloved sheep. Let's pray together for just a moment. Our Father, there will be a day of evaluation. And in fact, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the head of the church, evaluates us even now, even at this moment, even this very day, as a local church. May we be found obedient. May we be found loving. Lord, during this coronavirus time may we be found as those who are reaching out and 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 being tender and kind to one another and helping one another such that when we are able to come back together our love will have grown it will have increased it will have been magnified many times over And when the moment finally arrives when we are able to gather together and embrace one another and lift our voices in song together This local body will be able to stand proud in the best sense of that word that we are loving one another. That as we love one another, we are then loving Christ. Let that be the goal of our instruction is love. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.